the week before last, we looked at the uh, general overview of what the 70 weeks was all about in this passage, and uh, I'm going to assume that you were here and that you heard the sermon, that you understood it, because I don't have the time to do a review for that uh, this morning. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be taking a look at verse 24, which is really at the heart of this passage, what it is about looking at the six purpose phrases that are there. Let's go ahead and read that again. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, in the last week that this passage is talking about has finished, that means that these six things will already be history or have already become history because we saw that the last week was fulfilled in the war against Israel, verse 27, verse 26. Everyone agrees that verse 26 is talking about the destruction of uh, uh, Jerusalem and of Israel. Verse 27 says, then it's at that point, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. That last week extended from 66 A.D. to 73 A.D., exactly seven years. And in the middle of that week, in other words, three and a half years from the beginning point of that, Jerusalem uh, was destroyed Uh, The temple was destroyed, and thus the sacrifices which formed the center of uh, Israel's worship ceased. They were taken away, and really every excuse for not believing in Jesus uh, was taken away when those sacrifices were removed. And that's a bare-bones outline of the terminus of that. And this passage says in verse 24 that before the end of that last week, Before 73 A.D., these six things will have happened. Now, here's the problem. We have just about as many interpretations of uh, these six purpose phrases as we do of the 70 weeks we looked at uh, last week, and that's why I did not tackle verse 24. Uh, It was a long enough sermon uh, last time already by itself. Uh, We have to take this um, uh, 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 by itself. Um, Part of the problem is ambiguity in the Hebrew because the Hebrew can be very legitimately translated in various ways. Uh, The first purpose phrase there can be translated at least six different ways, believe it or not. Uh, The the next phrase can be translated four different ways. Uh, We can praise the Lord that phrases three and four, which are going to be key here, uh, there's no controversy on the translation Uh, a couple different interpretational uh, differences, but fairly straightforward Hebrew. Uh, The fifth phrase can be uh, taken uh, two or three different ways, and the last phrase there can be taken two ways. It can either refer to the anointing of the Lord Jesus Christ or to the anointing of the Holy of Holies that Hebrews refers about uh, in heaven. Now, when you look at all the different interpretations that are possible... That's just the the translations. Then you've got interpretations on top of that. Uh, You could just shake your head and say, you know, how in the world are we ever going to come to an understanding of this passage if scholars uh, have differed so much on it? And I have to admit, this does make a person approach the passage with humility. 
Uh, I don't think uh, we should have dogmatism in approaching the, the, the passage, but uh, many of the ambiguities are automatically resolved when the puzzle of the 70 weeks is solved. And I believe that we, we uh, did solve that puzzle uh, uh, for you uh, two weeks ago when we looked at that. But I'm going to look today at four other ways in which the ambiguities of the Hebrew can be cleared up. Now, I almost never do this. I almost never take you through the process that I go through in order to arrive at a conclusion when there's controversies that are there, but I feel I absolutely need to do that this morning if you're to have any confidence uh, concerning the interpretation. And so what you can just sort of think of this as being is a, an adventure in hermeneutics, you know, in, 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 in exegesis, where we're stripping away some of the possibilities, we are closing up wrong, uh, wrong starts, wrong rabbit trails, and eventually we're coming to a conclusion. And uh, hopefully you can find the process to be uh, somewhat interesting. The first thing that I do when I approach a study like this is to determine the meaning and the usage of the Hebrew words. And there's three, uh, three steps that I take to doing this. First of all, I'll look up every Hebrew word in a, a standard dictionary to see what are the variations and meaning on the terms. And then I will look up uh, <clears throat> the particular form of that Hebrew word, because depending on the form of the word, there can be different nuances of meaning, and along with that, the, the syntax. Then thirdly, I will look up every other place in the Bible where that form of the Hebrew has been used, and I will see how it has been translated. Now, I feel very uncomfortable uh, when I'm going through a passage in taking a non-normal, non-standard meaning for a Hebrew term, uh, unless it's almost forced upon you uh, by the passage. And uh, uh, what I have uh, uh, come to a conclusion on on this passage is that um, I have opted for the standard usage of the Hebrew term uh, in every place in verse 24. Now, some of the scholars have opted for very unusual, in fact, the New King James here has opted for a very unusual uh, translation for a couple of the, the Hebrew terms, and there are theological reasons why they feel compelled uh, to do that that are, that are quite legitimate, but it gives me at least a little degree of comfort to know that I'm taking the standard translational uh, usage of the Hebrew term. doesn't settle the question of meaning, but it helps. Secondly, I check to see if the context makes any difference on the interpretation or on the translation. For example, the first part of verse 24 places these six things in the context of Daniel's city. What was Daniel's city? It was Jerusalem. And of Daniel's people, national Israel. Uh, he tells Daniel that within this stated period of time, these six things will happen for your people and your holy city or as some translate it, against your people and your holy city. But either way, the interpretations that best account for how this fits into Jerusalem and Israel and God's purposes for it, I think, uh, are to be preferred. Uh, the, the phrase also indicates that these th six things should happen before the last week is finished. In other words, before 73 A.D. If you've got to fit it into uh, the end of the world or eternity or something like that, uh, to me, it's a suspect interpretation because I think it's very clear here that at, before the 70 weeks is completed, these six things have to have happened. 
Now, there are other contextual hints. The outline on the back side says that the last word in purpose phrase two is translated sin offerings 135 times in the Bible. Now, your particular translation may not say that there. Uh, it may say sin, and sin is a perfectly good um, translation as well. 155 times it's translated uh, that way. In other words, uh, either translation is, is equally possible. Uh, the dictionaries don't help there. But sin offering fits the context, it fits the structure, and it ties in with the theme of Daniel's prayer. Daniel's prayer was very concerned about the destruction of the temple. And if you take a look at the immediate context before that, verse 21, it says that this angel, being caused, right in the middle there, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, why in the world would Daniel mention about the time of the evening offering when there hadn't been evening offerings for 70 years because the temple had not been in existence? There were no sacrifices. Well, the reason he mentions that is because it is uppermost in his mind. He wants those sacrificial systems to be reinstituted. Uh, likewise, if you take a look down there at verse 27, it very explicitly talks about bringing an end to sacrifice and offering. Uh, very parallel to the, the passage here. And so I've opted for the translation of sin offering. There are other contextual clues as well, like the Hebrew article the, that, that occurs in front of uh, transgression and in front of sin offerings, but does not occur in front of iniquities. Okay? Um, Daniel seems to be talking about a specific transgression or a specific revolt, as the normal Hebrew term is, is used, in context. And I believe it was the revolt of Israel that Daniel's been talking about and verses 26 through 27 are going to amplify. He's talking about these specific sin offerings that are in the context, whereas when he talks about sin in general, he leaves off the article. And so there's the rule of using the ordinary usage of the Hebrew term where possible. Uh, secondly, seeing if the interpretation uh, fits the context. And then thirdly, the structure of the text many times will help to determine its meaning. Now in the Hebrew, you've got a, um, a, a method of writing called parallelism that occurs many times where two or sometimes three different phrases will be in parallel with each other, but almost always it's two. And uh, sometimes they will be in opposition to each other, and that will help to interpret the meaning. Sometimes they will fill out the meaning, and sometimes they will be synonymous parallelism. Now, almost all commentators agree there's, it appears there's some kind of parallelism going on here, but there's a great big debate as to what kind it is. For example, there are some who say this is three couplets. Others say, no, no, it, it is two triplets. And I'm not going to bore you with the details as to why they, they talk back and forth on that, but let me just give you a couple of samples. Those who argue that this is <clears throat> three couplets will say, if you take a look at phrases three and four, it is very obvious there that it is talking about the same subject from a negative and a positive perspective. And since those phrases, there is no controversy about the translation, and since it appears to be a couplet there, they are clearly parallel to each other, we should assume that the others are couplets as well. Now that's, I think, a fairly sound uh, argument, except that 
The problem is, those who argue for triplets say, take a look at the text. It is abundantly clear that the first three phrases are negatives which are removed, and the second three uh, set of triplet, the, the second triplet, are positives which are gained. See, that argues for triplets, not for couplets. And furthermore, they say that the middle of each of those triplets begins with the Hebrew word, exactly the same Hebrew word. And so they say it's clearly a parallelism that occurs in form of triplets. And um, anyway, the best arguments for both sides meshed and actually merged together when I realized that this was written in the form of a Hebrew chiasm. In other words, and this is a very common structure in the Hebrew, instead of this being written as ABC, ABC, as many people take the triplets and they're puzzled by it, it's written as ABC, CBA. And the middle phrases there that are the two C's are parallel, not because they're couplets, but because they are the parallel parts of the Hebrew chiasm. And so you can see the arguments on both sides are correct, but their, their, their conclusions are wrong because they fail to see that it, is a, that it is a chiasm. And so the first C is the negative side of the atonement. The second C is the positive side of the atonement. Can you see that there in the first uh, side of your outlines? The first B relates to a form of revelation that has ceased because it's no longer followed. It's the ceremonial uh, sacrifices and laws which pointed forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. The second B also deals with a cessation of revelation, but this time for a positive reason because of a completed revelation sufficient for all time. Uh, the first A relates to the revolt that's just been talked about in Daniel's prayer. It's amplified in verses 26 through 27. It's the civil and the religious revolt of Jerusalem and the temple, and which is restrained by the destruction of the temple. You see, without the temple, Judaism is absolutely robbed of any effective polemic against Christianity. Uh, they, they've been stripped of their reasons for not believing uh, in Christ. And so its revolt is restrained by the destruction of the temple that's mentioned later on in those verses, uh, picked up again. Again, verse 24, there's a further exposition in the later verses. The second A also relates to a temple, but it's Christ's anointing of the heavenly temple. And so there is a parallelism there. So structure helps to determine the text's meaning. The fourth clue to the meaning of these six phrases is in some of the Old Testament background. Now, we already pointed out last week, well, two weeks ago, I was sick last week, uh, that Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 26 are absolutely indispensable as background material to understanding this passage. Meredith Klein, many other commentaries uh, point that out. Uh, very, very important. And one of the things that I want to point out from there is that those passages did not speak of a forever casting away of Israel. What they spoke of instead was the need for Israel to appeal to God's mercy, to appeal to God's atonement. And um, they highlight uh, the importance of that. Verse 27 hints at the fact in the English and the Hebrew, it could go either way, but hints at the fact that those desolations would end and Israel would be ushered into the opposite of those desolations. 
Uh, the Septuagint makes that uh, very clear in its translation. But the atonement of Christ is at the very heart of this passage, and it was the rejection of that atonement by Israel that led to its desolations. Uh, we pointed out last time that there were two sets of 70 weeks. Each one was Israel's rebellion against God, which led to exile. And those stand as a double witness against Israel that because they were not, through their efforts, able to enter into their Sabbath rest. It is only the atonement of Christ, Christ's work alone, that can enable them to do that. Now, one other passage that forms a background to this is the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter uh, uh, 16 uh, and uh, 23, as well as uh, Hebrews 9 through 10. When you examine those passages, you can see the parallels just jump out of, uh, out of Daniel. Now, those passages deal very explicitly. That, that is the one atonement passage which deals with atonement for the nation and for the city of Israel. And uh, we're going to be looking here that that's exactly what the theme of verse 24 starts with. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And so we're going to see how the atonement ties in with that. Now, that is a huge introduction. And again, lousy homiletics. But I wanted you to see the importance of looking at the background of the meaning of the Hebrew words, uh, the context, the structure, and the Old Testament background. Now, take a look at the beginning, the, the first part of your outline, and you can see the literal translation there. Let me read that for you. Seventy weeks are determined against your people and your holy city to restrain the rebellion, to seal up the sin offerings, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and profit, and to anoint the holy of holies. And keep in mind that these six phrases parallel each other, not as an ABC-ABC structure, but ABC-CBA, and so that, that the point of that arrow, the two C's, are really the center, the, the very theme of what Daniel is talking about. Anytime there's a chiasm in Hebrew, it's the center points that, that, that are the, the central theme of that passage. Now, if you flip over your outline to the second side, you'll see those two C's are outlined with a little dotted box so that your eyes can focus right there. That's where we're going to begin. Phrase three or the first C in the text says, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, literally, that is to make atonement for iniquity, uh, to cover over our sins to avoid God's wrath. Now, if you've never had God's Holy Spirit bringing His powerful conviction to your heart, if you've never experienced His wrath, you cannot appreciate the incredible, incredible blessing of having your sins covered over by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we deserve to die. And it's only it, Christ as a substitute in our place uh, that could avoid that. And so this imputation of our sins to Christ, where Christ was treated as if He had committed our sins, is at the very heart of the atonement. I'm not going to go into the details, but the Day of Atonement, they put sins symbolically on the scapegoat, let it out into the wilderness where their sins were taken away. The other goat was killed, pointing to the fact that Jesus not only removes our sins as far as the east is from the west, but the penalty is paid as well, at the very heart of that. Well... I mentioned that the Day of Atonement is specifically for the city of Jerusalem and for the nation of Israel. 
And that's what this passage says. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to do these various things, including to make atonement. And to me, this is extremely significant because it means that not only was the Day of Atonement speaking about judgment, but it's speaking about all of Israel's sins being paid for at some point in history. The city of Jerusalem's sins being paid for at some point in history. The very people that are cast out by God's judgment in verses 26 and 27 will at some point in history enter into salvation. Okay, It's specifically related to Israel. Now, we were grafted in. But we're wild, okay? Unless some of you are, are, are Jewish in ancestry, we were grafted in as wild olive branches into the olive tree. This is specifically speaking of, of Israel. All God's elect, elect were saved through the cross. But there's coming a time when the elect, when Israel and Jerusalem as a nation will be saved. And that brings hope to me in verse 27 that the ending of the desolations is a bringing in of Israel's salvation. And if Israel's desolations are ever to be terminated, it's only going to be through Christ, their Messiah, who died for their sins. And there's coming a day when I believe that that will happen. Now, the flip side of the coin is also important. Notice the second C, which corresponds to the fourth phrase in verse 24. It says, to bring in everlasting righteousness. See, it's not enough just to have our sins covered over. We also have to be perfectly righteous in God's sight to merit heaven. Uh, Romans 9, 30 uh, through 10, verse 4 applies this to why it was that Israel was still in unbelief, still in judgment, because they were trying to achieve a righteousness in their own efforts rather than trusting in the Messiah to bring in everlasting righteousness. And Romans 10 goes on to say, there is coming a day, though, when Israel will do that, and God will take unrighteousness away from Jacob. Now, the Day of Atonement, you, you study that out, and it says it is a God-given righteousness. It's not something that, that we do. Leviticus says, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Now, there are many people who look at this and they say, well, it can't possibly be fulfilled in the first century because it says the removing away of all sins. It's got to be referring to eternity when all sins will be removed. Well, that's really an Arminian view of the atonement as if uh, we need to apply something. What Christ achieved on the cross achieved everything that is needed both now and for all of eternity. Jesus paid the price. Uh, for all of our sins, there is nothing more that we can add. Uh, Hebrews 10, verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There is the two sides of the righteousness that Jesus Christ brings in. The first side, he says that he has perfected forever. There is the imputed righteousness, justification. We're treated as righteous forever. He is perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified. There is the imparted righteousness or sanctification. So Jesus paid it all, this text says. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. At the cross, everything that was necessary for our salvation, for Israel's salvation, was accomplished. 
So you can see how the two C's in the chiasm, they parallel, they fill each other out. Christ's passive obedience, uh, many times it's called that, is where he had to suffer as a substitute for sinners. All of our sins were imputed to him. He willingly took them and was treated as if he had sinned every sin we had sinned. So that when God's wrath fell upon him, we were treated as having justly been punished. And then the, the act of obedience of Christ is where Christ lived a perfect life, lived his full conformity to the law so that he could give us his righteousness, so that we could be treated as being perfectly righteous even though we are sinners. He gave it to us as a gift. Romans 11 prophesies that one day Israel is going to enter into that. It says, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We can not only rejoice in that salvation ourselves, that we've been included in that, but we can look forward to and pray for the day when Daniel's city and Daniel's people will enter into the benefits of the atonement that Christ paid. It's guaranteed. He won it at the cross. Now, working outward from those dotted lines in your outlines, the B sections speak to the change of covenants which Israel had been blinded to. Both of these middle parts of the triplet begin with the Hebrew word chatam, which means to put an end to, to seal up, or to close off. Okay, the first thing that is sealed up or put an end to is given in the middle of the first triplet there. It's to make an end of sins in the New King James. And, and you, could tra- you could translate it that way. There are many people who treat this, in fact, all three of the first triplets as synonyms, different ways of saying the same thing, the removing of sins. Now, the reason I don't see it that way is because then there would be no parallelism uh, with the, except for in one point with the second Three, the second triplet, okay? Uh, let me give you what Holiday's lexicon says about this. It lists 135 times when that word is translated as sin offering, and many of the other 155 times could be translated as sin offering as well. Hebrews makes clear that sin offerings had to be done away with once the sacrifice of Christ had been achieved. Okay, the C's point to the sacrifice of Christ. And so the B's uh, are, are linked logically. Now the question comes, when were those sacrifices, those sin offerings done away with? Now in principle, I think that happened when Christ died on the cross. And remember that curtain in the temple was supernaturally ripped apart His death necessitated the ending of those sin offerings. But if you look at verse 27, Christ forces the issue in that war against Jerusalem. It says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, He shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In the middle of that seven-year tribulation, that 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, and from that time on, there have been no sin offerings offered. God made it impossible for there to be any substitute atonement that could ever be offered again. Um, The Jews, I think at that point, had been failing to see how those sin offerings pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a revelation intended to make it obvious that we cannot have righteousness on our own. We cannot atone on our own. 
When Christ came and they were continuing to do those, they were doing things in addition. And Hebrews, when it gives that exposition of the Day of Atonement, it pleads with the people not to go back to those sacrifices when the reality has come. And that we may not atone for our sins like those Jews did in the first century, but we many times have a tendency to want to add to the work of Christ and just feel like what Christ has done is not sufficient. We may do it by trying to suffer a little bit, you know, because we feel our conscience can't be eased unless we suffer more, or if we pray more, or if we do more good works. We've got to come to grips with the fact that Jesus paid it all. There is not a thing that we can do to merit his salvation. And it takes our pride completely away. It's hard on our pride. But you see, because the Jews were blinded to the fact that these, this, re, this ceremonial revelation pointed to Christ, he had to make sure those offerings could never be offered again. Now, the second B on the bottom side of the dotted box, uh, on the uh, uh, outside of that, it says that Christ must complete the new covenant revelation. Now, what relationship does that have to the ending of sin offerings? Hebrews 7.12 explains it this way. After talking about the removing of the temple, removing of the priesthood, and all of those offerings, it says this. For the priesthood being changed, changed, of necessity there must also be a change of the law. For on the one hand, there is a nulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. On the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. Now, he's not talking about changing the moral law there. He's talking about changing the ceremonial law and replacing it with the new covenant message. And so there's a parallel correspondence between the ending of the temple, uh, the sacrifices, the need for a new covenant revelation. And both were completed, both were ceased by the end of that last week before 73 A.D. Now, let's examine that second B phrase a little bit more closely uses the same word that uh, was translated in the first B phrase that's translated there to make an end of. Prophet. It's not the word for prophecy, it's the word for prophet. And most commentaries agree with that, but because of their theological uh, uh, reasons, they say this must be an unusual usage of the, the Hebrew word, and prophet stands for prophecy, and so they translate it as prophecy. And I think part of the reason for that may be in part because if you take the Hebrew straightforwardly here to put an end to, to vision and prophet, it means a cessation of Scripture and revelation. And the problem on their interpretation of the 70 weeks is that ends three and a half years after Christ. The pro what's the problem? Well, all of the New Testament was written after that period. So how could, be, how could it be a cessation uh, of revelation? Now, I, I just want to remind you, I don't have the time to prove it again, but verse 26, everyone agrees that points to the war against Jerusalem. Verse 27 says that last week happens then. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And he goes right on talking about the war. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out upon the desolate. And so, um, if we take the Hebrew at face value, it's saying 
that before the end of the war in 73 AD, the inspired message and the inspired messenger, both the vision and the prophet, would pass away, would cease, would be closed up. Now, so that you can see that I'm not stretching this, I want to show you how this word to seal up is used elsewhere. I've already pointed out uh, where the, the Hebrew is, everybody agrees it's pretty straightforward. Earlier it says to make an end of sins. Okay, that's the way it's used there. But I want you to turn with me to Daniel tw chapter 12 where he uses the same word twice again. In verses, uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 4 through 13, the angel gives one last message to Daniel. And I want you to look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. There's the word again. Seal the book until the time of the end. A Daniel was to cease writing. Now, if you take a look at verse 9, the command is given again. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, he did not mean by that that Daniel was to close up his Bible like this or his book of Daniel and he was to put it on a shelf and nobody was supposed to read the book of Daniel until the time of the end because then Malachi would have violated that and Nehemiah would have violated that. Uh, no, what he's saying is that Daniel was to close up the book in the sense that no more was to be written. And indeed, with the stop of the angel's speech, there is not another word that is given by Daniel. And if Daniel obeys the orders to seal up the words of that book by no longer writing any more prophecy, then the more general command or a prophecy that vision and prophet would be sealed up must mean a general cessation of the writing of Scripture. Okay, can you see that? Now, the clearest passage on this subject is Isaiah 8, and I don't have time really to look at that. I'm just going to give you a brief exposition, but it uses the same Hebrew word to seal up in connection with the cessation of Revelation in 70 A.D. And the reason we know it's 70 A.D. is because the New Testament uh, quotes that over and over again and applies it to the casting away of Israel. Okay? It's in that context, first century context, that it says, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. That's verse 16. It's a closing off of the canon. Verse 19 says that any so-called inspired revelation, any revelation after that period is demonic. And then the next verse says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, what word? The Scriptures. they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So, so the word of God that was given by 73 A.D., and uh, there is more and more evidence, even liberals who like to date things way later are beginning to say that the evidence is overwhelming that every book of the Bible, including Revelation, was written prior to 70 A.D. That means that it's the final word of God to which all appeal must be made concerning the will of God. Now, he's not talking about guidance. He's not talking about, about natural revelation. He's talking about this kind of revelation, inspired, infallible revelation. It's sealed up. It's done. Now, an immediate objection that somebody might give is that we could take this passage in a different way, that to seal up vision and prophecy, or vision and prophet, could mean that the writings of the prophets, the prophecies of the Old Testament, are fulfilled before the end of those 70 weeks. 
Now, the reason that that really cannot uh, be the answer is that there are many, many prophecies in the Old Testament, including in the book of Daniel, that simply were not fulfilled before 73 AD. Uh, the resurrection, general resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, the second coming of Christ, the conversion of the nations, uh, the conversion of Israel. There's so many prophecies that were not fulfilled. So I don't think that that is a legitimate uh, way to, uh, to take uh, that, uh, that particular uh, uh, passage uh, it says in verse 24, 70 weeks, no more, no less, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, etc., etc. Now let's quickly look at the A parts of the chiasm. The sixth phrase, that's the last phrase there, is, and to anoint the most holy, or as the margin and the New King James says, to anoint the holy of holies. Now I've not found a single reference where that phrase is describing a person. I used to take it that way as a reference to the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I guess it, it's an outside possibility you could refer to that. But because of how it's used always of the Holy of Holies in the temple, I have uh, taken this as a reference to Hebrews talking about Christ anointing the Holy of Holies in heaven, having purchased heaven for us. And uh, this ties in with the Day of Atonement as well. Uh, Christ not only had to do away with the first triplet, uh, do away with the earthly uh, temple, the earthly sacrifices and our sins, but He had to bring in the second triplet, everlasting righteousness, a perfect and complete revelation, and purchase heaven as our abode. Hebrews 8.5 says, everything that happened in the earthly temple was patterned after the heavenly temple. And on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with the blood and he anointed and he atoned for the temple and he sanctified the temple, it represented what Christ would do when he purchased heaven for us. Now, um, Hebrews 9.8 says, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Can you see that? Christ had to purchase it. Hebrews 9.23 says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Israel didn't recognize that. They continued to go through all of these rituals as if Christ had never come. And so Christ had to restrain the rebellion of the people. And so the corresponding first A talks about why the judgment in verses 26 through 27 was necessary. The New King James says to finish the transgression. Almost always the word finish there is translated a means to restrain. In fact, the, the, the dictionary defines it as to restrain or to imprison something, to, to chain it in. Uh, and then the second word, uh, the Strong's defines transgression as, quote, a revolt, national, moral, or religious. Israel was in fierce rebellion and revolt against King Jesus, nationally, morally, and religiously. And verses 26 through 27 say that he brought on that seven-year period of tribulation to restrain their opposition to the gospel and to make a substitute atonement absolutely impossible. One of the central features of the Day of Atonement, and it's a scary part of that 
uh, Day of Atonement, is that anyone who rejected the atonement that was provided by God, treated as an unholy thing, would be destroyed. Leviticus 23.30 would be cut off from the kingdom. Leviticus 23.29 would bear his guilt outside the camp. A number of verses in Leviticus 16. And you can see when Hebrews 8-10 through 10 gives an exposition of the Day of Atonement why he pleads with the Jews not to go back to those old rituals when Christ had come. And if they do go back, they will be judged right along with national Israel. Here's how he ends his exposition of the Day of Atonement. He says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And he makes clear when he's talking about his people, he's not talking about, uh, about believers. He's talking about national Israel. Because he goes on to say, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. He's talking about judgment on national Israel. See, when Christ purchased heaven for us in the second A of the chiasm, when he purchased the new Jerusalem, the new temple, new priesthood, he ended the old. And so the literal rendering of the passage is quite appropriate. There needed to be a restraining of national Israel's revolt. You know, the Apostle Paul grieved. He wept over the national blindness of Israel to the gospel. The atonement of Christ was so clear an answer to Israel's every need, but because they rejected their Lord by crucifying Him, that's verse 26a, God rejected them, verse 26b through verse 27. And verse 27 hints that there will be an ending to the desolations. Of course, other passages fill that in. Romans 11 rejoices in the fact that Israel will one day be saved. But I want to end with the sadness of an ancient Jewish prayer that's taken from a liturgy that's been used in Jewish circles on the Day of Atonement, that's Rosh Hashanah, for years and years and years. And here's the irony. Their Day of Atonement doesn't anywhere remotely resemble Leviticus 16. There is no scapegoat. There is no bloodshed. There is no atonement. But here is what they say in their liturgy. And it almost makes you weep when you see how close to the truth they are, and yet so far away. They say this, Our righteous Messiah has departed from us. We are horror-stricken and have none to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions He carries who is wounded because of our transgressions. He bears on His shoulder the burden of our sins to find pardon for all our iniquities. By His stripes we shall be healed. O Eternal One, it is time that Thou shouldest create Him anew. So close and yet so far away. I want you to not only rejoice in the fact that you've been grafted into the olive tree, that you have entered into the benefits of the atonement, but I want you to pray for national Israel. I want you to pray for Jerusalem, that they would enter into the benefits of the atonement that Jesus Christ purchased for them. Romans 11 says, one day it's going to happen. 
It says in Romans 11, verse 15, if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, that's us, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And we need to pray that God would hasten the day when what has been purchased for them would be fully entered into by national Israel, by Jerusalem. Amen.